Please remain standing as you're able. They asked Jesus once what was the greatest commandment. And he responded with the Shema that begins in Deuteronomy 6, 4. So we follow after him and I invite you to follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Had. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Please be seated. This morning's uh, scripture story is uh, rather long, and I'm going to give you uh, my loose paraphrase, so we won't call it exactly God's word, so I invite you to uh, be seated for that. But here's the, here's the deal. We've been following Abraham the last few weeks, and beginning in chapter 12, Abraham receives a great promise from God that he will have a child and become the father of a great nation. But 25 years have passed, and that child has not yet appeared. And then in the 18th chapter of Genesis, God comes to visit and tells Abraham and Sarah the good news. But before God is going to leave, God says, since Abraham's going to be the father of the nations and all the earth shall be blessed through him, should I keep from him what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, that the outcry against them is so great? So God comes, and as Abraham stands before him, God says, uh, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and, and I'm going to go find out for myself if it's true. And Abraham says to God, uh, God, would you really destroy the righteous with the wicked? What if there were 50 righteous people? Would you destroy them along with the wicked? Far be it from you, God, to destroy the righteous from the wicked. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God said, if I find 50 in the city, I will not destroy it. And then all of a sudden, Abraham bargains to 45, and to 40, and to 30, and to 20. And then Abraham says to God, Oh Lord, don't be angry. Let me speak just once more. What if there are 10 righteous people? For the sake of 10 righteous, says God, I will not destroy the city. And God walks off, and Abraham goes back to his place. And that's our scripture for this morning. You know, I've never been a number one draft choice. I've never really been a highly coveted free agent. But I've, I've wondered what it would be like. What if you knew that just in a few weeks or a few months, your ship was going to come in and everything you'd worked for for years was going to finally pay off? And the big contract and the millions of dollars and the great prestige was going to come your way. What would you do between now and the time that contract was signed? Well, I don't know what I would do, but I can tell you some things I wouldn't do. I probably wouldn't take up a motocross or an extreme sport. Probably wouldn't try to see how many buses I could jump over on a motorcycle. Probably wouldn't take up sumo wrestling. Probably wouldn't see if I could get aligned with a drug cartel. Might even curtail my evening activities if they looked a little questionable. I mean, I would play it safe if I were on the very brink of having my ship come in. I don't think I'd take any chances. That's what's so amazing about this story today. Abraham's on the brink. Twenty-five years 
Abraham has been waiting. And he has played it along the straight and the narrow. He's been patient. He, he hasn't stopped believing. He's held on to the feeling. He's held on to the promise. He, he won't let go. In spite of there being no evidence. He's been patient. He's stayed faithful. He's been generous. When he captured a lot of things uh, from the war against the five kings, he, he gave the stuff to Melchizedek. He's taken risks. He went and with 318 trained men rescued Lot and the other people of Sodom when they'd been captured. He's done everything right. And here at this very moment, when it's going to pay off, when the child who is everything to him and to Sarah has been promised, all of a sudden he steps outside the box. And God says, well, yeah, I kind of need to let you know about the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and I'm going to go check it out. And he said, now, God, you don't want to do that. God, what? You don't want to destroy that city. What if there are 50 people in it? Far be it from you, God. And while God's still processing, goes on and says, shouldn't you do what's right? You know, if I'm God, I'm thinking, what are you saying? You talking to me? And it keeps going. 40, 30, 20. I mean, Sarah's not even showing yet. And he's about to throw it all away. You know, Abraham's just not like me. If I'd gotten that close to everything being fulfilled, I think I would have played it safe. Abraham's not like me. He's certainly not like the people of Sodom. And we'll talk some more about Sodom next week. I, I'm sure you enjoy the irony, as I do, that the two um, Sundays of spring break, we're going to work on Sodom both weeks. But the people of Sodom, as we find out next week, they don't care about anybody. They wouldn't stick their neck out. They wouldn't take any risk. He's not even like Noah. This, this fascinates me that a lot of the early commentators or rabbis from centuries ago, before Jesus, who comment on Genesis, uh, make this observation that when uh, God says to Abraham, I'm, I'm going to look at Sodom and Gomorrah, and basically I'm going to destroy him if, if that's true, what I've heard about him. Abraham says, no, don't do that. What if there are 50 people? Centuries earlier, God had come to Noah and said, you know, this whole planet's a mess, and, and I'm going to destroy the planet. I need you to build an ark. And Noah's response is, okay, how big? They notice that Noah, who's obedient and who's righteous, to be sure, never even raises his hand and says, you sure you want to destroy the whole earth? What about... And they argued that Therefore, Abraham was a better man than Noah. Certainly better than Sodom. Certainly better than me. In fact, I'm having a hard time to think of anybody who really is like Abraham, who's really willing to risk everything that's been promised and throw it all away on behalf of somebody else. Well, there is one person. His name's Paul. And, and Paul is, is uh, a great rabbi, taught by a great rabbi, uh, but one day he's on the road to Damascus to arrest and round up Christians, and he meets Jesus on the road. And sometime later, 
as this follower of Christ, he's struggling with the fact that so many of his brethren, the Jews, do not believe and do not follow Jesus. And this is what he says in the ninth chapter of Romans. Again, this is my loose paraphrase. Go home, check it out for yourself. Starting in chapter 9, but he says something to this effect. I, Paul, would go to hell if the Jews could go to heaven. I, Paul, would give up everything I have. I would lose it all for them if they would come to the right place. Paul's like Abraham. He's willing to risk on behalf of others. It's, just, it's amazing to me. And so I have to think, you know, what makes Abraham like that? And I don't know. I don't know that I know completely. I have some thoughts on it. One of the things that's interesting to me is uh, is this whole uh, bargaining deal between Abraham and God. I don't know if you, when you've been to a foreign country in a place where they like to barter and and they're used to bartering. bartering. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Sounds like they're in the bazaar there, and and uh, and and God. And Abraham's like, well, I got a deal for you, 50, no, 45, no, 40. And they haggle back and forth, and they get to 10. It's kind of interesting to me. We're not really sure why Abraham stops with 10. There there are some theories, as as you might imagine. Uh, One of the theories is uh, that Lot uh, has a wife, four daughters, and four sons-in-law. And so there are 10 people. So he says, for them, save the city. But there's a couple of issues with that. One is we're not really sure, by the way the text reads, if, if Lot has two daughters or four. It, it, it's a little hard to figure out when you get further into chapter 18 and 19. The other thing is anybody who wants to call Lot righteous has not been reading Genesis very closely yet. So that probably doesn't count. Other people think, well, you know, in later days, in order to worship God, you had to have ten men, ten Jewish males. Uh, they formed a quorum minion, uh, they could have synagogue service. And so perhaps they got the principle from Abraham uh, centuries ago that, that ten people form a worshiping community. So maybe he's saying, look, if you're being worshipped at all there, God, we don't want to do that. Maybe. Uh, here's my favorite one. In the days of Noah, there were eight people who were saved. So I'm thinking maybe Noah's doing the math and going, okay, eight didn't do it. Maybe ten. Maybe ten. Or maybe, and this is my favorite one of all, maybe Abraham really didn't stop at 10. Maybe God just got tired of listening to it and walked off. When you read the text, and, and, and there are footnotes, and you'll see that, they, they argue, with it, argue with each other a little bit. But one of the translations seems to indicate that, you know, Abraham says, well, you know, let me try for 10, and God says 10 and walks off. And you get the sense that Abraham's getting ready to go for five. But God won't hear any more of it. Abraham is going to risk it all and do everything he can to save these people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Well, I don't know. Maybe because Lot lives there, but, you know, if you, Lot's been a pain in the butt, personally. Uh, I, I think it's just he cares about people he doesn't even know. I think he doesn't want to see anybody destroyed for any circumstances whatsoever. And his passion and compassion is so great that he's willing to roll the dice and risk his entire future and his lineage for the sake of these people whose reputation is a little shady. 
He's willing to wrestle with God for the life of people he doesn't even know. You know, for millennia now, when people have talked about the story of Abraham uh, haggling with God over Sodom, one of the lessons that they've drawn is this, that a lot of times prayer is like that. Prayer is basically us coming to God and haggling with God for people. One of the things that you may have noted when you opened your bulletin this morning is, for the fifth Sunday in a row, another card fell out. Well, what we're going to invite you to do before the end of the service is to think about a situation, an issue, a person, a people that you're willing to wrestle with God over. And I invite you, there's no basket to put it in, I invite you to fill it out and put it in your pocket and take it home. And for that person with cancer, that person whose marriage is on the rock, for those people or children kidnapped against their will, for whatever, you're willing to go to bat. Write that down. And that's one of the pictures an Abraham and God and Sodom is this picture that says, I'm willing to wrestle and struggle. But there's another picture that I think is pretty interesting, which is, why does Abraham even think he can get away with this? You know, what's he base it on? And if you look at the scripture closely, here's two of the first things that Abraham says to God. The first one is this. God, far be it from you to do something like that. And a little bit later he said, Now God, the judge of all the, all the earth, doesn't want to do that. One of the things I would say to you is not only does Abraham love people who may not even be very lovable, but he knows the love of God so well that he wrestles not on the basis of his compassion, but he wrestles with God on the basis of God's compassion. He knows that God cares more about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah than he does. He knows the love that God has for them and for all people. And it's because of that love that he's willing to appeal to that love and to take this risk. What if it were true? What if God loved the people we loved even more than we love them? What if God loved the people we don't love even more? than we can imagine. What might we do? What might we say? There's an old story, and I can't verify it's true, but I sure wish it, I sure wish it was true. It's, it's a couple decades old now. Story about a woman who's studying abroad in a Middle Eastern country, and she is arrested for dealing drugs. And she claims she didn't do it, and, and I don't know whether she did or not. That isn't even the point of the story. But the point of the story is she's arrested and she's under this country's judicial system and it's not looking good for her. I don't know if you've ever watched those shows like Locked Up Abroad and stuff. When you get out from under our system, it can be rough. And she is afraid for her life. She might never get home. They bring her in for her day in court. She walks into the courtroom. Her counsel is at her side. She takes her seat the judge has come in, she looks, and suddenly this woman who's been terrified smiles. You see, she knows the judge. He uh, studied law in the United States for three years. 
And when he was in law school in the United States for three years, two of those summers he actually clerked for her father, worked for her dad. Well, not only that, the whole three years that he was studying law school, he actually lived upstairs in her house. She knew him. She knew that he wouldn't just be fair. He would be generous. She knew that the judge was not just her judge. He was her friend. What if we knew that? How might we pray differently? Would we wrestle more if we knew that God loves Sodom even more than we do? What might we do if we remembered that God is love?